sales and marketing is only going to get you so far. And in order to really bolster up the, the, the revenue of the company and the enterprise value of the company, I have to eventually turn a good eye into the operational efficiency and the finance and accounting world. Welcome to the Everything is Influence podcast. This podcast is dedicated to help you understand why human beings do the things they do and ultimately how you can work with human psychology to influence change and get people to do what you want them to. Whether this is your clients, your prospects, your kids, your spouse, or anyone you come into contact with, this show will give you the tools of influence so that you can become more, unlock your true potential, and serve even more powerfully than you already do. My name is Eli Wild. Let's dive in. All right, so welcome back everybody to the Everything is Influence podcast, where on every episode, we go into the four levels of influence. What has this person done in the world? How do they see the process of influence? What are they creating? How do they really build influence at scale, which is legendary? And what are the influences in their life? How do they take that out into the world to people and process and ultimately uh, have impact in the world? And I met this gentleman, I guess, wow, I guess about two years ago, we were connected to a company and it was in some of my sales stuff, but I saw this dude and I was like, man, I need to learn from this guy. And since then we've just developed a friendship. And if there's somebody out there that has a big vision for what they're doing, not just a visionary of ideas, but can take those ideas, not only for himself, but into other companies and create systems and processes so that companies can scale with process and ultimately build those companies to be sold. Uh, so without any further ado, Mr. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm, I'm excellent, Eli. How about yourself? I'm great, man. It's, uh, you know, again, it's great to, to reconnect here. Um, so I, I want to just dig right in here. And if you could let our listeners know, uh, well, what are, what are you up to in the world right now? And I know you just gave me a bit of this insight, um, but it's, it's really impressive. If you could tell everybody, um, because it's not just sales, it's influence, it's management, it's really building companies that are doing well to doing, to doing great. Um, so what, what are you up to in the world? Kind of let everybody know. Yeah, so I'm the general partner of a private equity fund called Columbus Capital Equity Group. And we specialize in small market acquisitions and grow them to, I'll say, large mid-market uh, as we sell them, right? And so... Really, Eli, specializing in those businesses that are two to ten million dollars a year in revenue, yeah. that have just hit a, a I'll call it a, an artificial ceiling, but a ceiling that feels real nonetheless. And then mm-hmm. myself and the team that supports me, right, analyze the opportunities inside of a deal, inside, analyze the opportunities inside of an ecosystem of a business, come in and offer either capital for equity or occasionally a level of consulting for equity, but much more capital. And then we get really strategic in helping those business owners that have sold us a portion of their company, I'll say more, at least double what they got from us, right? So the goal is to help a company truly grow at scale, remove the owner um, from the day-to-day monotony that might've existed from hitting that ceiling, some of the frustration, backfilling them um, if they so desire, and then having them just enjoy more life as we grow the company, make sure everybody gets, I'll say a couple more zeros in their bank account along the journey then sell it off at yeah. some point in the future. Okay, so that's interesting. I, I love it. And there'll definitely be some people here that are not at that level, some you know, at that level. Um, when you see people, two to 10 million, looking to go big, um, and I know that there's no one size fits all, but what do you think makes somebody kind of stuck? Um, you mentioned capital, so they need access to more funds, getting some more you know, gas in the tank, if you will, for marketing or business or employees, uh, kind of break down what is that process taking somebody from, you know, these mid-level on up? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, Eli. So some of the similarities, right? I, I, I see, seek out patterns. It's kind of how my yep. brain works. Yep. And so have in, have businesses in my portfolio now that are everything from, you know, um, tech companies all the way into consumable good companies and then down into manufacturing of automotive parts. So a good speckling of companies inside the portfolio. And what I've noticed with each business owner is they've made it past the three, four, five year mark, but they're successful. They, I don't say they want for nothing, but they, they want for nothing. 
right? Mm -hmm. Life is good for them. But there's a situation in which they don't know what they don't know, as cliche as that sounds. And they've been stuck and siloed in this industry that has made them successful. And I'll call them accidental entrepreneurs, where they stumbled into the opportunity. Maybe they work for another company at some point and got tired of having to deal with an owner. So started their own company, didn't have any level of formal training, didn't understand finance and accounting, understood probably sales and marketing enough to get something off the ground. But if you really want to start talking scale to me, there's a pivot point. There's an inflection that happens almost always in between that two, 10, maybe 15 million mark where sales and marketing is only going to get you so far. And in order to really bolster up the, the, the revenue of the company and the enterprise value of the company, I have to eventually turn a good eye into the operational efficiency and the finance and accounting world. And it's almost a foreign okay. language. Right. Like think about even yeah. our relationship, right? We're, we're sales guys in some capacity. And I don't want to downplay the significance of sales, but hopping on the phone and having a charismatic conversation, you know, pacing it and getting it to a desired outcome is somewhat second nature for many people. And yep. that works and that works. And we eventually influence others and teach them how to sell. And like, so we build a sales team around us, what happens yep. quite often. And then eventually we bring somebody in for marketing because if we have more leads, we can sell more. Yep. All beautiful, all powerful. But then what happens when you're like, okay, well, how do I manage the tax landscape? How do I create efficiencies? I want to travel around more, right? I know you have a, a tremendous amount of speaking engagements coming up. Well, how can I justify an expense out of private jet? Because my time is of tremendous value to me. Mm -hmm. And how, how can I figure out a, an efficiency where that makes actual sense numerically for the business? But then also, how can I backfill so that my responsibilities as a charismatic leader of, of the movement, if you will, isn't a necessity? Or I take mm -hmm. somebody that you and I um, would know in our own capacities, take someone like a Russell Brunson inside of ClickFunnels yeah. right, as, as a conversation starter. He's built an incredible enterprise. And while ClickFunnels is a, is a great company, it's, it's Russell Brunson's company and the name is so synonymous. So his marketing mm -hmm. is coming from him. The idea iteration feels like it comes from him. And so what actually happens in the, I'll call it the next level of the business landscape is that company is worth less money than a company that has no charismatic leader. Because if Russell's yeah. in the company, the perception is people will leave the company as far as customers go. And so mm -hmm. there comes a point where it almost becomes a, an owner's responsibility to remove themselves. But then there's an identity crisis, of course. Right. Cause like yeah. I built this company from scratch to, you know, five, 10, 15, $20 million. I've got a nice car, a nice house, a nice watch, a vacation home. I've got the things. And now you're telling me I have to step away from my company. Mm -hmm. So there's this level of uh, psychological intervention. There's a level of financial intervention. There's a level of operational intervention. And then of course we tiptoe and tap dance back into the marketing and sales side. Well, like on the marketing mm -hmm. side, you really want to start talking about how to make a company worth a significant amount of money you need the attribution of different clients to come from different channels in equal proportion. So we talk mm -hmm. LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, yeah. we kind of go through all those, but then also can you do a one-to-one -one basis on referral? And they yeah. can do a one-to-one -one basis on paid acquisition versus email. Like how diverse can you have your traffic sources in the marketing landscape? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to, to unpack here. And you know, I'm obviously like the largest self-proclaimed Tony Robbins fan in the world. And he owns like 105 companies and is, is the one that he has this self-development brand. I um, mean, it's the Tony Robbins company. And in this internet marketing world, there's a lot of talk of having a personal brand. You know, there's Tesla, for example, and then there's Elon Musk. Would Tesla be as popular without Elon Musk? But it's, it's interesting once a company gets to a certain point, you have that charismatic leader, you have this, this, the face, the Steve Jobs, the Tony, the person, and you have the brand. And, you know, if the person starts to remove themselves and wants to have a life or just wants to sell the company, the brand can become less valuable. And so it's about creating a, a brand, regardless, like separate from a, a personal brand. That's what I'm hearing, like an actual company that doesn't rely on the face of a person. And that's, that's most business out there, unless you're in the internet marketing space. And then it's about really optimizing all of the systems, not just about getting more clients, but tax efficiencies, people, process, referrals, like kind of looking at all the different strategies is a big, it's a big part of it. Absolutely. Right. Like Jay Abraham would, would share with us, Eli, if he was on the call, there's really only three ways to grow a company. Yeah. Find up more clients, sell the clients that you already have more things or sell the clients you have things more frequently. Mm -hmm. That's really what it comes down to. 
And so we look, and to me, it's a rush of sales to start with. A lot of us, even the businesses that I, you know, tap into or get to, to purchase equity in, they focus so heavily on new client acquisition that they kind of turn a blind eye to lifetime customer value and customer redundancy. And so those are things, even just quick wins is, right? What, what are some things, because I know you mentioned you have, what, you have like this Kratom company thing, you got, uh, name, name is some of the, the companies and, and what your, some of these companies you're plugged into, if, if you can. Of course, absolutely. So I own a company called MIT45, which is probably the third largest Kratom company in the country, right? Kratom what, is, being, what is Kratom for everybody here? I've taken a lot of it. Uh, yeah. what, what is your explanation of what this is? Because it used to be, I think, illegal. It's like a derivative of opium or something. It's like in uh, certain places in Indonesia, they made it like illegal or really hard to get. What, what is this? What is this Kratom stuff? Yeah, so it's went back and forth um, in, a, in a litany of different ideologies of what it does and how it operates. So it is a leaf indigenous to Indonesia, um, naturally occurring. It's, it works on the B receptors, the beta receptors of the opioid channel inside your body. And so have you taken it? I I take it sparingly, right? For me, this was a company that I was brought into originally in a consulting agreement, right? Just kind of the backstory on it. And the business owners, two partners, had just hit that ceiling. The ceiling was five and a half million bucks. They'd been there for quite a few years and just like, what's next? And at that point they were fed up. They wanted to consider exiting, right? It was, okay, what do we do? What are we doing? Shared with them a path and a plan. And that turned into fractional COO for me and then full-time COO and then CEO and somewhere in their equity partners. And that's, that's grown and scaled where Kratom itself for me has been a byproduct of an efficient business and emerging market where it's, um, it's a lucrative business. It's a business that to me, I look at Kratom very comparable to CBD from five years ago. So Eli, right before you and I met, I grew a CBD company early 2016 and sold it off December of 2018. And so kind of mapping out the trends, they're very, very comparable where right now it's just like you said, what is Kratom? Is it good? Is it yeah. bad? The federal government, right? We get into some, some conversation around big pharma and people use Kratom to get off of Suboxone or Oxycontin or any of these opioid based products. And so um, without being too much of a conspiracy theorist, there's certainly conversations to be had around the fact that this would not be beneficial for big pharma to have a naturally occurring product. That would mean you wouldn't have to continue to take opioids, you know, prescribed from the doctor. And so that's been an interesting business as we've grown it. We're pacing for 85 or 90 million this year. In a, wow, in a, that is quite a, quite a bump from 5 million up. Yeah, right. Some through, um, a lot of it's through acquisition, right? To me, there, there's, there's levels that happen, Eli, where, like I said, they come on board with that 5 to 10 million. There's a ceiling that exists. I see that up to 50 million, that can typically be just making the wheel spin a little more efficiently, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's just making sure the processes work. We come to this point where then it becomes actually more efficient to, to buy your way through market share. So mm-hmm. you grow through acquisition to some of these next steps. And it's not that there's a- by acquisition, how do, you, how do you mean by acquisition? Buying other companies that do something similar? Yeah, then, that, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. This, this company in, in Salt Lake City, MIT45, we've only offered B2B services. We offer no direct to consumer. So I went out and found a very large competitor that only does direct to consumer and figured out what their company was worth and offered them a check to a full check to sit on the sidelines. Um, they graciously accepted that. So we're integrating them into our system, which then creates um, you know, a of other companies that also want to, to potentially be acquired, right? That are just not fed up, but just they've hit their own ceiling. And so yeah. now all of a sudden we get the buying power, we get the leverage of a centralized accounting and marketing department. So the company that we acquired, it's net margins increased just by acquisition and the acquired company that we now have as part of ours, we acquired in such a way that it's cash flow positive from the first day that we acquired it. We took out enough leverage, i.e. debt, that the repayment cycle is over seven years. The business itself pays for, pays for itself in its debt service and puts cash in our pocket. And so you go through a couple of those and now all of a sudden we're you know, 85, 90, $95 million pacing in revenue. Now the, the year's still early, who knows what'll end up tapping into. But now it starts to become the time to consider selling it or taking it to the public market, which we're, yeah. we're more leaning towards the public market, right? As we've had some, some pre-valuation, you know, IPO type of, type of deals where we'll look at 
you know, maybe a Toronto stock exchange or something like that mm-hmm. and be one of the first Kratom companies to go public. And it's just, yeah. it's just the same process at scale, right? It's like the same thing over and over and over again, just with, with more pieces bolted onto it. Yeah. When you come in and you, you know, actually, cause a lot of the listeners here, you know, have companies and will be, you know, at that level. Um, you know, I had a lot of friends and even for myself, we were doing kind of some consulting. I did some stuff in the dental world. Um, but even now, you know, working with sales teams, you know, a great example for somebody that wants to optimize their company. I've worked with consultants in different industries, home remodeling, all of that. And it's like, well, people are like, well, what should I do? And we go into the, some of these companies, kind of secret shop and call them. The way that people answer the phone, most companies, terrible. Their email copy, terrible. But you go into like, say, a, uh, a dental office, looks like it was designed in 1978. You got like these just miserable people behind there. It's just, everybody's, ha- you know, just, they don't have any uh, systems and processes to re-engage the customer on the marketing. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot there with making making the buyer experience more enjoyable, inefficiencies, cleaning those up with the marketing, the sales, the tech, the technology, to making sure there's automation and the touch points to maintain customer relationships. Um, And a lot of that requires people. Do you have anything to do, I guess, with, because I know a lot of people listening to this are at a place in their company, the ones that are listen, that are looking to build a team to replace themselves, managers. uh, So there's like recruitment. do you deal with that or do you put people in place? Do you have, what does that process look like of uh, finding talent? And, you know, are there any kind of guiding philosophies? You know, we, there is a lot of tactical things we could discuss, but what is kind of the guiding, you know, principle, you know, and, and even companies that we've, we've looked at, we tell them they need to be spending their money. They do have, you know, like 20% marketing, 10%, like, you know, getting some like ongoing support or coaching, looking for different ideas. Um, they got 40% payroll. Um, they've got like t- 10% variable and, and fixed kind of expenses and then 20% profit. Um, but, you know, when you go into these companies, you want to have more profit, you know, more EBITDA, you know, all that stuff and, you know, reduce these expenses. Are there, are there consistent patterns, we'll use that word, that you look at criteria when optimizing some of these, some of these companies, certain things you do around people, process, tech, marketing? I know it's a loaded question, but what are like the top things that you look out for and red flags? Incredible question, Elon. I couldn't agree more with all the numbers you just shared in the thought process of looking at a business. Okay. So I'll, I'll answer the first part of what I heard to be a two-part question. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, Getting no, better it, at the question it, thing. <laughs> it, it's beautiful. So when I look at the, the personnel side of things, right? Because you have people and you have processes and they, they intercorrelate with one another. Mm-hmm. What I find speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs is their inefficiencies or lack of sophistication in the hiring process. And what I found to be a steadfast rule is it only behooves you to pay at the top of the market for top tier talent. Mm-hmm. And so in, in essence, don't be penny rich and pound poor, yeah. where quite often, like I use a software called ERI, which is the Economic Research Institute. So it's ERI, ERI.com. I'm not affiliated with them. I don't own the company. It's just great software that taps into ADP and ADP being the, you know, the, one of the larger platforms for payroll in the country. And it's doing data aggregation behind the scenes where I can step in any company and say, okay, in Wellington, Florida, if someone was willing to drive 20 miles to get to an office, Hmm. here's all the data for the role and responsibilities that you're saying you want to hire. And the range based off efficiency or effective nature of that person should be between 75 grand and 120 grand. Hmm. Well, my suggestion to business owners, or if I come into a business myself, number one, I'm going to interview the staff that sits there, right? I get to be neutral. I don't have the beautiful or painful baggage of how they got to that position. And so understanding what questions to ask, what do you ask the head of marketing? Let's say, what do you ask the head of sales? to see how elite are they at their job. And if they're not elite at their job, they're just good. How much is good actually costing you? Mm-hmm. A lot is always the answer. Where there's a big increase for elite. Like, let's, let's bring up, Eli, someone that you're obviously incredibly familiar with, in Tony Robbins. But mm-hmm. I, I, would, I don't know someone that would be better than him at the transformational change part of life, right? And I certainly mm-hmm. don't know all of his pricing models and strategies, but there are probably thousands of people that could claim to get comparable results to Tony Robbins, but Tony Robbins is elite. Mm -hmm. So if you had your choice, 
who would you want to work with? The guy that studied under Tony Robbins, six parts removed, or Tony Robbins himself? Tony, yeah. Of course, every time. But when we're looking to staff businesses, quite often we talk to, well, I can save 20 grand a year if I go with this person. Mm-hmm. The initial challenge is stop skimping where you should actually be investing. Yeah. Then from there, it gets into, I'll say, dependent upon the market and the business itself. I found that most compensation structures are inefficient where people right, are, haven't set and quantified or codified um, roles and responsibilities. How does someone know if they're exceeding at their job or excelling at their job? Do they have a clear cut defined bonus structure that incentivizes the desired outcome from their role as it pertains to the desired outcome of the business? Or is it kind of just a grab bag where Susie's been with us for 15 years, so she comes in the middle of December every year, we sit down and have a conversation, negotiate over what she should get paid. Well, that's, that's eroding employee confidence. That's, that's leaving things to chance. that should be things that are of complete certainty. So for me, I come in and right away, it's, we're going to use this specific website and we're going to do cost of living plus 2% every year. That's just what you get for being a part of the company. There's not going to be a conversation around that. And we're create a, bo- a quarterly bonus structure that ties your outcome as your financial outcome to your input towards the company's desired outcome. Mm-hmm. So if the company needs to do 20 million this quarter in revenue, and you're the head copywriter, I'm going to attach your bonus structure to copy converting in a certain metrics that's ensuring that when you do that, the rest of the waterfall falls as it should. Yeah. So I'm finding those to be consistent in in every business is removing the emotion, right? Kind of maybe some of the opposite of of some of the sales things that we might've shared before. It's to me, compensation and the business itself should be somewhat void of emotion. Now that doesn't mean to be you know, a, a robot with business or people's emotions overall. But most leaders of the businesses that I work with, because they build it from scratch and because so many people help them build it, I find it to be fascinating that they, they've almost turned off the brain of considering of what got us here won't get us there. Mm-hmm. And so they, they want Susie that's been with us for 10 years or six years. They want Susie to be a rock star, level 10, incredible employee. But in Susie's mind, she's already operating that pe- capacity and her own belief system, but she's really operating like a solid six. Mm-hmm. So man, does that happen in business after business after business where there's just different levels of talent and people have right, different attributes that make them successful. They have different drives and internal motivators, right? We get into- so You're saying to tie the, the company's like quarterly revenue to employee, um, incentives, compensation, bonus structure. Um, that's amazing. And it's a company goal, not by, so these companies you go into, do they have a, like a C-suite mm-hmm. typically? And so it's interesting in some of these companies, you have almost like marketing and sales compete, like, hey, we're doing our thing versus, and so it's, it's interesting. And I know companies I've worked in, there's kind of that, it's like a battle. Is it hard getting these companies, like these different you know, C-suite managers and, and companies to not be competitive with each other, blame each other. Like, do you work? Cause you know, just anytime you're dealing with humans and you know, then there's like the, the numbers. So business, I, I always remind people it's a numbers game. You know, we need to take the emotion out of it, but people, anytime you're dealing with people, there are some emotions involved. Um, and then when you come into companies, I'm sure there's firing people, there's, there's replacing people, all of that. Um, for the human optimization coming into companies to scale people to make them more effective or replacing people kind of what's your philosophy? What are, what are things you look for? Red flags, like go-tos, what, uh, you know, I, I know it's another kind of loaded question, but what's, what's the process you have in dealing with these things called humans to make them better other than just paying them more money? Cause sometimes that doesn't work. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and Eli, I think human capital is some of the most important capital we can invest in. So mm-hmm. maybe contrary to what other private equity human, firms human do. capital. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, like so quality people. Yeah, it, it's the how much do I pour into, or can a company pour into its employees? Because it, it, other than maybe some SaaS based tech companies, maybe your company is only as good as the employees that help support the mission, vision, and values yeah. right, at some level. And so certainly, money is a motivator for some, but for others, it's not as much, right? So. During the, the integration process, as we either acquire a company or we'll even take, I'll take this as more of a consulting conversation. So as you're listening, this is super applicable to, to you because you might not be looking to sell a company, 
right, what I'm going to do is, is have conversations and right, take some of the stuff, I'll say from maybe the old teachings that you shared with me, I need to know right away, what is someone's, I'll call it check down from how they process information? Are they visual, auditory, or kinesthetic? Because mm-hmm. I need to make sure person by person that I'm saying the right things in the right order to enroll them in the new vision of the company. Because yeah, if someone's auditory yeah. and I'm visual over and over again, it's not connecting, even though half the room is getting it and really what uh, a yeah. little bit more than that potential with being visual. And so starting to look at certainly at the interview process prior to either coming on board as a consultant or requiring the business, and there might be some disgruntled people inside the business that might need removed. But really what I found is disgruntled employees, for the most part, it comes from lack of clear leadership and direction. They're disgruntled because they don't feel like they have a place in the world. Every once in a while, there's, I'll call them some bad actors, right? We've all been there. We've all seen that. The guy that, the guy or gal that's just so far gone that they, right, they, they're really looking for something else. They, they haven't admitted to themselves, but they're, they've already, the bridge has been burned. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I found that just doesn't happen. All right, what really happens is people want to be given clear swim lanes, clear, yeah. clear ways to be successful. And right, as, to me, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as a C-suite, whatever you call it, it becomes our job, our duty, our responsibility to lead someone to a desired outcome and give them yeah. guardrails to run, run their own race, stay in their own lane. But those guardrails are, do they have clear defined roles and responsibilities with desired outcomes that yeah. they can self-govern, right? Like, how do you know if you're doing great at sales if no one's ever told you what your quotas are, how many dials you should make, what's your average talk time? There's some things where you could be like, I'm crushing it. But mm-hmm. you don't really know because you don't have something to compare it to. And so yeah. that's certainly huge. Yeah. You're having that feedback loop. And then to me, what I found, Eli, is there's there's these 90-day tranches we go through. The first 90 days, people are kind of getting their footing underneath them. Like they're challenging the belief systems. They haven't, they haven't adopted the new way. They're they're hovering back and forth between the old way that the company used to be and the new future we're we're driving towards. Mm-hmm. We get to that through that first 90 days and you have those early adopters that came on board that we hope are those, I'll call them evangelical leaders of this new movement, right? We're, we're hoping that they can inspire other people around them. Yeah. The next 90 days, you get really clear where most of the company should be on board, right? So now, now we're through half a year. And then that third quarter is to me, uh, certainly I'd make tough decisions beforehand, but very rarely do we look to terminate someone or remove them anytime inside the first 180 days because people are just trying to find their footing. And I have to operate through that assumption. Have I put the lenses on of life in through which someone is viewing me? Mm -hmm. And I can't do that inside of six days or six hours or six weeks. I I have no understanding for what they've been through in their life or what's important to them. So of course, I'm this big, scary guy because I've heard all types of atrocious things about people that come in, either as consultants or new owners. They're gonna fire everybody. The world is gonna change. And it doesn't matter what I tell them. It doesn't matter what I show them. It doesn't matter what I let them touch, right? Visual, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. They have to believe it at their own pace because you still have the hardwired human biology that people are slow to believe, right? Like Mm -hmm. I look at it, it's 60 to 90 days to create a new belief cycle. And they're going to have to see it for themselves firsthand that like they're safe. Because then yeah. we get into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Are, that we're talking base level needs. Are they, do they feel yeah. safe in feel their role? Safe. Yeah. yeah. And if they don't, well, of course they're not going to perform. You know, it's, it's interesting too, this whole, you know, dealing with human uh, thing. And you mentioned SaaS. Uh, you know, there's some companies that want to kind of replace people. When you come in, um, there's developing people, of course. And then part of optimizing a company big time uh, is also cutting costs using replacing people with, automation, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, there, there are companies that have people doing things. Uh, like even when you go to a lot of airports, especially in Europe, you there's like the little convenience store where you can buy the $7 water and all of that stuff. Uh, but now they just have kiosks where you just scan it yourself. And of course there's a, a metric. Some people will steal it, you know, which, you know, cuts away at costs, but based on like, you know, if one person, uh, one less person steals per hour, then that person, you know, it pays for the person checking things out that's getting paid 15 or $20 an hour. And so there's, there's some math there involved. Um, do you come in and optimize on the tech side? Are you looking at that stuff as well? I absolutely am right. There's, and that's that, that's that back and forth. That's I think one of the inherent dualities of life as we know it right now is caring about human beings, literally wanting people to succeed, seeing a future bigger for themselves or more grand for themselves than they might've considered before, Mm -hmm. but also understanding the fact that, 
Um, in some parts of every industry, technology is going to outpace the way humans can perform. My manufacturing business is a perfect example for me. Right? Yeah. The, the manufacturing prowess that exists right now, what used to take me 14 people to manufacture a product, I'm able to do it in six. Mm -hmm. I'm able to do it with six people. So what becomes fascinating with the way that my mind works currently is if all 14, 12, 16 of these people are truly they care about the business where you'd be very difficult to determine who to, who to terminate if we had to. Mm -hmm. I started thinking instantly, what other companies can I buy? What other things can I acquire? How else could I reposition the human capital? Not being flippant towards them, but you got people that really care that they deserve to be somewhere. Now it's not creating inefficiencies by just adding payroll and you know paying them more money to sweep the floors, but mm -hmm. there's so many different ways that people can, can I don't say earn their keep, but be a value-added contributor to a, a global enterprise, instead of looking at the micro, can you look at the macro? We've got these people that are loyal. Can I go buy another business? Can I create a spinoff from what we have? Can I create a white label brand that they're in charge of? And sometimes the answer is no, right? Because the automation has, has outpaced what a human can do. Yeah. And then to me, it comes to, as I call it, doing things that are ecological. Are they win-wins? Where yeah. that individual has worked hard in theory for quite some time. I want to make sure their severance package is greater than they could have ever imagined before because over a period of time the, it's still going to catch up to itself like i want to be able to look at myself in the mirror every day and realize the 20 dollars an hour laborer am i really going to notice if i paid them six weeks severance versus four is the company going to notice at all yeah. no but in yeah. six weeks i know they've been given a fair shot to get to get another job i know i can work with another placement service that if i'm going to terminate people that we help them find a new job as part of the transition because to me it's especially in today's world right look at what's went on over the past two years without getting too politicized with it now how could it's, it's pouring into actually caring about people like mm -hmm. really really genuinely caring like mm -hmm. That has led me the right place every time I've done it is when I've just cared. Even when it, even it. When it doesn't make sense, right? Mathematically, it doesn't make sense to invest more money in a placement service when you're going to terminate somebody. Yeah. But it does when I see them 12 weeks from now. Yeah, and they important. Hand, they thank yeah. you. Finding the right people, developing. I mean, and what you were saying earlier, you know, finding the right people, because there's almost nothing more expensive in business than uh, a bad hire. So, you know, in sales, I mean, there's a clear uh cost of bad action uh for for back to let lack of a better term um so how many, how many companies are you involved with right now and how do you find these companies yes yeah, so another good question so total amount of companies in my portfolio right now would be 12 yep. 12 different companies in various roles capacities right investment levels yeah the majority of it has been eli word of mouth i would love to say there's been some fancy marketing funnel but there hasn't been for me it's been a handful of individuals that I, I say are great referral sources. What I found um, is wealth managers are just great resources of, of people that know individuals that own businesses that, you know, who are you going to talk to about some of the uncertainties that you might have inside a business other than the person that's managing your money? Cause you can be a little vulnerable with them yeah. where it's not a sense of judgment. And then right, one business owner leads to two, perhaps just like, you know, you've experienced yeah. in your life, they do a good job for one person. They're doing well. Their company is increasing. They're happier. They're talking to their buddy at the country club or the golf course or the racetrack or wherever they spend their time. And it turns into more, more yeah. clients. Right now, it's a big part of being influential is this, this concept of relational capital. And when you do well here and then you go into a company and you know some people here, you can see how they can possibly merge, you know, people process buying this company to, uh, complete some inefficiencies here with what they're good at here, whether it be B2B or B2C. Uh, so this is amazing what you've done. Uh, so for a lot of people listening here, they, they would like to be able to come into a companies, uh, get some money, build companies, uh, have the, the intellect and the knowledge base to uh, even acquire companies. I know um, Keith Cunningham talks about this. A lot of people, Roland Frazier, um, I saw both of those gentlemen speak at Business Mastery 2 over in Amsterdam, and they have courses on this where they talk about, you know, instead of starting a company, you can buy somebody else's company. There's a lot of the baby boomers that are wanting to get out of their business now. So you can buy these businesses, especially like, like doctors have, you know, that are retiring, they have these huge databases and office and all of that, and, you know, want to sell their company. And so people are, you know, it's a great idea just to buy a company, not even to start one because they already have a database, all of that. And so, you know, that's what's happening. 
people are wanting to do this. This is kind of a, a hot thing. And so you already, without reading the book or anything or signing up for the course, you're just doing it. And so for some people here, they're at a place where they're like, hey, that sounds cool. I would like to be a business consultant and do the thing. How does one go from, you know, what's what's been your business journey? Like, where did you start out? And how does and what's been kind of your your evolution to to get it to this point? For many people listening, also they're they're starting in that journey. So, what what were your beginnings into business? Yeah, so Eli, beginning in the business was the illustrious world of automotive sales, right? So I started out as a as a as a used car salesman, nice. in a little, little town in Ohio, and learned learn a little bit about positioning, positioning and pacing, and find some things that would later become valuable in life. That eventually led me into more luxury automotive management, kind of a natural progression, right? For someone that I didn't treat automotive sales as the last stop on a journey. I treated it as the first stop. I was really passionate about it. Thought you could do it honestly and ethically and thought you could really make an impact. That led to, like I said, high-end automotive management in, in some luxury brands. That eventually led into being brought on as an affiliate manager or what we might call a sales professional inside of a startup web hosting company. Right. I didn't know anything about the internet, didn't know what web hosting was. What no, year is this? This would have been, oh gosh, Eli, 2012, perhaps 11, 12, somewhere yes. in there. Mm -hmm. um, the company had just started, maybe had 10,000 clients. We collectively figured out something that the rest of the world hadn't figured out at that moment in time and took the, this little company to 580,000 clients in about two years. So a lot of scale. That brought me on and into the C-suite. So I went from affiliate manager to president and CEO, mm -hmm. uh, managing partners, some different things that way. Ended up selling that off to a subsidiary of GoDaddy, right? And it wasn't some illustrious high, high zero exit. It was one of those things that myself and the partners didn't see eye to eye anymore and where we wanted the company to go. Our revenues were trending down. We didn't create enough moats around the business. But Looking it was- back on it, if you, so were there any mistakes in there? Like if you could have done some of these processes in your journey again what are some mistakes that you made that you might have done uh, quicker faster more efficient or just totally different what are some kind of things you would have done differently yes yeah, so i would have understood finance and accounting right okay. what, what happened in that world we were selling people three to five year hosting packages yep. and right they were paying for it all up front which is incredible right tons of revenue flowing through the door anywhere between 30 and 50 million a year but by the nature of that we actually had a deferred revenue calculation that we should have had to kind of dive in the weeds, switching from cash to an accrual basis in finance, because we had a five-year contract with that customer, we actually should have taken the, the money that they paid and incrementally applied it every year, every every month for five years. Mm -hmm. And we should have done things a lot differently that way. And we didn't. So when yes. we went to the market to sell the company, we thought, oh my gosh, we're going to just you know knock the cover off the ball. We're, we're minted for life. We're done. And then you start playing around with what I call the big boys, right? The guys yeah. that do this for a living. And we're, we're, we're minnows that got swallowed by sharks in, in four minutes time, right? Mm -hmm. So it would be having a, a more granular understanding of what finance and accounting best practices are. And yeah. right, so that would be one side. The other side would be understanding that building a moat around your business is important. And yeah. if you have a business in which someone can knock off your service and create a, a watered down replication of it with very little barrier to entry, it becomes a commodity and a commodity eventually always races towards the bottom. And so as competitors yeah. come out, be aware that you should either acquire them or consider selling your company or be okay with the, the decrease in that marginalization as it's a race to the bottom over a period of time. And so people are going to knock, knock off your thing. Yeah. Always. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I want to back up. I, I kind of missed something here. You were doing used car sales and mm -hmm. that's a, that's a beast of a job weekends, all that stuff. It's not an easy gig. Yeah. Um, and then were you doing this, this other business, like in addition to, did you break off like that transition? Cause a lot of people listening here are in a sales role. Now they're not happy. They're not liking, they're not doing well. It could be cars or something. Um, and so it's like, are you working at nights on this and days on this? Like, how did you find the time and the energy? How did you get presented with a different opportunity and a different, a different lens around business and a different psychology to say, I don't want to just be a used sales guy, used car sales guy. I want to like break off. You know, you got to have the energy, the skill set, the relationship, the time to study stuff. Like what was that evolution from just sales guy to these other businesses? Yeah. So Eli, I'm a, I'm a big fan of be, do, have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. As, as I look at that in pertinence to this, 
inside the automotive sales world, like I said, stepped into more of a managerial role in Columbus, Ohio, from a small town in Mansfield, where I'm from, Mansfield, Ohio, yeah. and ended up running the becoming the general sales manager of a Ferrari, Lamborghini, Bentley, Porsche, Rolls Royce, like a, a new car, massive franchise. And yeah. while it was exciting, I started looking at the income that I was making, which right at this point, I'd be remiss to say, I remember exactly what it is, but probably 250 to 300 grand a year. Yeah. But started realizing, Eli, that I was really working 85 or 90 hours a week. So I wasn't actually making 300 grand a year. I was making 175 twice or 150 yeah. twice. Yeah. I was working two full-time jobs and just woke up one Monday morning, just really hating, like dreading having to go into the office. And yeah. so on a whim, wrote a letter of resignation, sent it in, had some cash set aside, right? Certainly, I, I can't say independent wealth cash set aside, but it was six to eight months of, of burn, right? That yeah. was sitting inside plus some investments and just didn't know what was next, just knew where I was at wasn't it. It wasn't going to be the place. And that actually led, I interviewed at Lamborghini Ferrari of DC and then Lamborghini of Dallas that I was going to just jump back in the car business. Mm -hmm. It happened to be as I was returning home from one of those trips from interviewing, a gentleman called me, I had put on a track day at a local sports car course in Ohio. Mm. He brought down, he was a financial advisor. He brought down high net worth clients and I brought up cars to race around the track. Mm -hmm. And he called to order back then. It was a brand new Ferrari 458. Mm. I said, you know, my friend, I'm, I'm not there any longer. I can't, I can't, I can't help you, but I can introduce you to the right person. He goes, well, I told you at the track day, you should come up and talk to my buddy. He just started a new company. You'd be perfect for it. Like, man, I don't understand what, what the business is. I don't understand tech. I don't understand web. What are you even talking about? He goes, I don't understand it either, but the job is really you traveling around the country, taking people out to great dinners. Maybe, uh, you know, call it what it is, visiting a strip club or two and just having a great time. Yeah. When I'm 26 years old, I'm like this, I'm not married, no kids. I'm like, this is, this is the life. I'll go up and talk to him. Yeah. Literally, Eli just interviewed very, very well for the position. It was between myself and one other individual. And they offered me the job. The only reason I took the job is because of what they put on the potential compensation package for me. <laughs> then there was, a, there was the, the kind of maxing it out was $45,000 a month plus. It was like, I remember very vividly the bottom tier or top tier, however you look at it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, you put it to, in writing that you won't change this for at least a year because in the automotive space, every time you really start to hit the top tier, your pay plan got altered, right? There's this carrot and stick type of methodology. And so the owner at that point spun around the contract, wrote right on it. He wouldn't change it for 18 months. I extended my hand and said, okay, let's go. I knew wow. nothing about tech. I knew nothing about web hosting. I can't say even right now, Eli, after owning the company, I yeah. still don't know anything about it. I understood sales and marketing and uh, relational capital and things like that. And yeah. had some really brilliant people in more of the tech side. Right, yeah, so. it's uh, obviously with the, the Tony background, one of the things I teach and I push so much is this concept of self-development. And I love how you hit on that, be do have, you know, and I love the quote, I quote all the time from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who you are speak louder than anything you can say. And I, I tell people all the time, you know, it's like calling somebody 20 times and hustling, hustling and grinding can get through, but there's that one person that can just give you an authentic smile. And you're yourself, you have a great presence, great voice, good looking guy, strong, you know, you've got just a great presence about you. Was that always there? Cause a lot of people who are listening are, you know, we've all got, most of us have some inefficiencies in that space. Uh, you're, you work hard on yourself. You work out a lot. Uh, what, what did you, what'd you do this? What time did you get up this morning for breakfast? Uh, what'd you eat for breakfast? What time did you get up this morning? And how often do you work out? We got to know these things. Oh man, Eli. So today was a travel day. So I was up at 4am. I'm yep. normally a 5am, 445, 5am type yep. of guy. I prioritize sleep though. So for me, it's more of the alarm clock goes off in pertinence to when I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of reverse engineering that breakfast for me. I'm, I'm more of an intermittent fasting type of guy. I'm more of a, you know, I can get kind of following the natural circadian rhythm that I, I tend not to eat until the sun comes up. Cause I don't think our ancestors would have eaten before the sun comes up. Cause they wouldn't have been awake yeah. living in Columbus, Ohio. The sun doesn't rise until, you know, seven, seven thirty or so. Mm -hmm. So I typically don't eat until after the gym. So my gym time ends up being seven 45 to eight 45 or so. And I'm in the office by, by nine and then wrap up by give or take six, right? Six 30. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, kind of my day. And then for, for me, as far as number of times I work out throughout the week, I do something physical for myself seven days a week, but more because I enjoy it than feel obligated to it. I'm really big on analyzing what, it, what creates obligation feedback loops and then where do those drive from?
where I generally enjoy the gym. So I'll lift weights four to five days a week. Yeah. And the rest is cardio or active stretching or swimming, something, something low impact, something just because I generally enjoy it. It makes me happy to be at the gym to get that endorphin rush. And nice. so uh, a lot of this, Eli, uh, I'd love to say that I always had a confidence and charisma to me. And perhaps I didn't, perhaps I didn't, we'd have to talk to other people that had seen me at different phases, but I would say up until I'm 38 now, I'm until probably 35 mm-hmm. and massive insecurities that were really the driver of the majority of my decisions. It was, mm-hmm. right, I, I needed to work out because I needed to look a certain way. So I felt better about myself. I needed to posture that I had more money than maybe I had because that would make me more popular, more, you know, accepted by people. And it's only been in the past, you know, perhaps two, three, maybe four years where I've just settled into myself, right? I'll say truly loving myself for all that I am and all that I can be and just feeling really comfortable with that and being dynamic enough to know that all this changes over a period of time. Yeah. It's important. It's a great, uh, great philosophy there. They were always, always evolving. But yeah, that, that whole concept of self-acceptance, you know, self-acceptance, not over-posturing because people, you know, it just, it doesn't feel good for other people. It doesn't feel good for us. Um, and that it really makes people magnetic when they can drop in and, and own who they are. Um, you know, so this, this has been great. And I want to be respectful of your time, but is there anything, you know, so a lot of people here hearing your story and how we'll push this out there are wanting to, of course, you know, be, big daddy consultant, help people make money, get a percentage, all that stuff. Um, what, what advice would you give those folks other than what we've covered um, to folks wanting to, to be a consultant, want to optimize their business or somebody else's? What are some you know, final steps you'd say? To own exactly where you're at in the process. Yeah. No matter where you're at in the process, you have value that is greater than you could believe in this moment. The first consulting clients I I had, their companies were more successful than my company was at that moment or the company I had just sold. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't posture the fact that, right. I was this massive, you know, I'm going to get you to a hundred million dollars because I know, because I read in a book, I literally was having that humility and I was, I was humble enough to say, look, I'm uncertain. I'm I'm certain in myself. I'm certain in the process I bring to the table. I don't know if they're going to work inside your business. Yeah. I feel comfortable that if I'm in there and I spend a day or two, I can let you know very clearly if we'll find success together or not. Um, and I think there's a lot of that, I used to call it authentic vulnerability. It's okay yeah. to not have everything figured out. I'm really, really good, Eli, getting a company to $100 million. Like I'm really comfortable. I've been there a bunch of times before. Mm-hmm. But past $100 million, it's like the great abyss. I don't know yeah. what that that territory looks like. So I don't need to you know, codify or qualify myself as this massive, you know, I'm going to get you to a billion dollars. I think it's, I think it's so important to just honor where you have been because there are people that still want your help and your brilliance for what you have been through, even if it's not so pretty, right? There's a little interim period where sold the, sold the hosting company, started a high-risk merchant processing company. And in 18 months, all the money I made for my exit was all gone. I might as well have been bankrupt without declaring it. Truck repossessed, rental properties in foreclosure, literally no money left in my bank account. This was about eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. And my first consulting clients cared more about knowing that because they wanted to avoid that outcome. They wanted risk reversal. They wanted pain removal more than they Mm -hmm. wanted potentiality of growth. And it was me just owning the fact of this is part of my story. I'm not, instead of running from it or being shy with it, this makes me who I am. Like, okay, I want that version because whatever you did, can you help make sure I don't do that? Yeah. Absolutely. I can. I can share exactly how I got there. And we can cheer up your boat to make sure you don't have the same holes I had. Mm-hmm. So I think that's to me, like that, I don't that message never gets old. It doesn't get old in relationships, it doesn't get old in friendships. It doesn't like I am who I am, and I'm always, I'll say, in the constant state of evolution, the constant state of growth. And so the version that you have now is we're having a conversation everything goes the right way. Six months from now will be a heightened version of self from today. So right, I don't have to pontificate what that'll look like because I don't have a crystal ball. I just know mm-hmm. what's coming. And that's really important. That's beautiful. Authentic vulnerability. Honest. Lay it all out on the table. Be okay with making some mistakes and uh, learning from them and helping other people. So I dig it. Uh, where can folks find out more about you uh, to get some more of this juicy wisdom or, or possibly partner or find out if you can help them in that capacity, where can uh, they connect? 
Yeah. So Eli, it's ryannidell.com. It's R-Y-A-N-N-I-D-D-E-L.com. I'd have a little opt-in on there to, to sign up for a newsletter. It's not a fancy course to buy or some sort of big thing. I'm, I'm one of those, I'll say Gary V jab, 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 you know, left hook type of guys where the email list is three times a week getting value added information. I share very clearly twice a year, I'll promote something. I don't even know what it'll be. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, a way to give back and connect with people that it's, it's actually me writing the emails. It's my team making sure it gets in your inbox, but it's, yeah. it's just a, a fun way to connect with people. So that's, that's, that's the best way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know you had no course to sell or market like uh, most of my, my friends and folks we have here. You're just, just doing this just to share some of the, the good here. So I got uh, a bunch of notes here and things that I'm going to, to do just thinking about my, my own journey and, and, what we're starting to get into is some sales consulting, really thinking about the psychology and what we can look for more efficiently as we go into some of these companies. So uh, this was really helpful and I uh, appreciate it. And for everybody listening here, uh, thanks again for listening and I'll see you very soon on the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Everything is Influence podcast. If you got value from this episode, loved what you heard, and you want to go deeper into really understanding the core fundamentals of influence, then I have one more gift for you. I've put together a special training just for the listeners of this podcast that breaks down the four levels of influence and how to start using these tools in your life today. If you want that free training, then go to wildinfluence.com forward slash go. That's wildinfluence.com forward slash go. That's wild with an E at the end, then influence.com forward slash go. All you need to do is enter your name, email, and phone number, and we will send that over to you straight away. Until the next time, my friend, this is Eli signing off from the Everything is Influence podcast.